Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is Andre from The Mental Elf, and I'm here with João Goulao, who's the Director General of CICAD here in Portugal. Uh, CICAD is the Portuguese Service for Addictive Behaviours and Dependencies. So, João, I wanted to ask you, for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what's happened here in Portugal over the last few decades, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about drug decriminalization and what you've done here in Portugal. Okay. Well, I, I think it's important to understand a, a little bit of our history and uh, how things happened uh, the way they, they, they did. Uh, I, I start by saying that, uh, as you probably uh, know, we lived for a long time under a dictatorship, almost 50 years, uh, during which we had, I can say, we had no problems related to drugs. We were protected under Redoma. Uh, uh, by the political police, censorship, uh, the limitation to move citizens' mobility. Uh, we barely could travel abroad and we were not a very sexy destination for tourism. So we lived here isolated. And things that uh, some movements that happened elsewhere, such as the DEP movement or the students' movement in France in the late 60s, did not touch us. Okay? So we knew nothing about about drugs we barely heard about about them but we could not access to them but at the same time by the end of the of the, during the 60s by the end of the regime we were dealing with a colonial war in our ancient colonies Angola Mozambique Cape Verde Guinea-Bissau and our almost our, all our young male population was sent there against their will, mostly. Uh, and down there, a little bit like the Americans in Vietnam, drug use was tolerated or even incentivated in order to keep people, let's say, happy with that, with that war. Suddenly, in '74, we had our uh, democratic revolution, our carnation revolution, with a huge uh, number of changes in our society, a sudden openness, uh, new habits, uh, we started to travel uh, and to be visited by young people from other places. And shortly after, we had our decolonization process and the return of one million people from the colonies, soldiers, settlers, uh, that came back. It was a difficult time to absorb them in the Portuguese society. We, we are 10 million inhabitants, roughly stable, so to absorb, to include 1 million people suddenly, it was a difficult moment. Uh, and in, in fact, they, they were bringing their habits, of course, and uh, also tones of cannabis that suddenly became become available for everybody for free easily and we, they distributed it to, to their friends to their families and there was an explosion in uh, experimentation of, of drugs of, of drugs of cannabis uh, the first, in the first first moment uh, shortly after some let's call them some criminal organizations came some branches of international mafias started to develop to, to offer all the others and making all the other substances available in our market. So suddenly in a completely naive population towards drugs we had everything, uh, cannabis, plenty of it, but uh, also heroin, uh, cocaine, uh, LSD, you name it. The, 
in my view, it was shifting from one to the others was facilitated by the lack of knowledge that we had at the time. While other societies could learn how to deal and people could learn how to deal with it and knew the differences uh, between different uh, substances, uh, for us it was uh, so, so everything was so fast that suddenly we had a, a huge spread of uh, heroin use, mostly heroin, uh, through epidemic, uh, spreading through all social groups. It was not something that happened uh, among uh, marginalized groups, minorities, uh, ethnic or others, but through uh, cross-cutting all, all the society medium class, upper classes, political class, everybody. So in just a matter of, of a decade, it was almost impossible to, to find a Portuguese family that had no problems related to heroin. 100,000 problematic users of heroin by the mid, uh, by, the, by the end of the 80s, uh, beginning of the 90s, with AIDS coming along to complicate things and spreading among those users, uh, overdoses, deaths, uh, criminality, uh, raising. Uh, we never had a big violent criminality, but uh, so those Hollywood things, shootings, uh, but uh, we had a very nuisance, uh, pity crime, uh, criminality, uh, so acquisitive crimes, so you could not ladies could not wear their purses on the street because someone would pickpocket it and well, that kind of things. So it became higher and higher in the priorities, the social priorities and political priorities. Uh, in my view, the fact that it was so transversal, so cross-cutting society led us to a humane approach because it's different when it's uh, something that happened to the others, to the excluded, or if it happens to my family, to my son. Uh, I know my son is not a criminal. I know my son is a good guy. He has this problem, but uh, he needs help, he needs cure, he needs uh, treatment, he needs uh, support. Uh, so this was the mindset of people towards drugs problems started to develop. Our our drugs law was quite tough at the time, inspired in the war on drugs. Uh, but in practice, uh, we uh, the, the real approach was a little bit milder than, than that. And we started to develop uh, health responses, uh, treatment, uh, treatment network, some preventive work uh, in new ways, but some arm reduction uh, measures, all that. But even then, the state started to invest seriously in, in the area because it was so crucial for, for the public opinion. And, uh, uh, but in practice, we, we felt that we needed a clear guidance because even in some basic uh, aspects, we could not agree, even among professionals dealing with the with the, with the phenomenon, we could not agree about some tools, for instance. Being heroin, uh, uh, the biggest problem that we were facing, uh, we could not agree about the use of methadone, uh, even among us. Uh, so we needed uh, to stop and reflect and to have a clear guidance, a clear strategy to address this. Uh, this is just an example of what others uh, could... Uh, so, in, by the end of the of the 90s, uh, 
our Prime Minister, Guterres, who is now the United Nations Secretary-General, um, with his Deputy Prime Minister, José Sócrates, later became, became Prime Minister, they invited a group of people, a group of experts of several areas, from judges to psychiatrists, psychologists, and so on, group of nine people, among whom I was included, so that I had my, my share <laughs> on this. Uh, we were asked to to build, uh, to, first of all, to, to present a report on the snapshot of the situation uh, and, uh, uh, and strategic proposals to address the ground on the supply side, but mostly on the demand side. And we did it. We did so. so we had uh, wonderful conditions to work. We had the, the opportunity to visit other places, uh, to, to talk to politicians, to professionals, to drug users in Switzerland, uh, Germany, uh, UK, Spain, you name it, we visited. And then we built our proposal with new well, systematization of uh, some of the things that were already going on, but uh, with a clear uh, option, uh, for instance, the adoption of uh, uh, believing that uh, opioid substitution treatment could be a, a useful tool to, to address. So it was clearly stated on the strategy that it was a, a possible option. For this, uh, Once again, it's one only one example. But we built our strategy based on the idea that we were dealing with a health and social problem rather than a criminal one uh, when we talk about drug use and possession for use so in uh, in, uh, in that line in based in the humane and the pragmatic approach we proposed the decriminalization of every drug so our proposal was to change only one article of the previous law uh, that still remains today the law from 93 uh, and we only proposed the changing of the article that deals with personal use and possession for use. Okay. Well, so the the government adopted that that uh, proposal of a strategy as a complete package, uh, but the issue of the criminalization had to be discussed at the parliament. It is not within the powers of the government. So, and that discussion happened only one year later. So we took, we the proponents, we took that period of one year to organize a huge number of public sessions with the population to discuss the proposal. Very crowded, very much attended in cinemas all over the country with uh, real people discussing it. And what I get from that period was a huge social support to the idea of decriminalizing. Once again, in my view, it comes from the fact that everybody had someone at home or in the close neighborhood that had problems with drugs. So people tended to be this, um, this uh, to, to adopt this humane approach. I'm really interested in the humane approach. I want to ask yeah. you a little bit more about that because I think if you look at the drug use series that The Lancet published this week, yeah. they're talking about 20th, 20th century drug policy being, you know, out of date and we need to reform internationally or across the world. Yeah. But the core of that message seems to be that we need to be treating people with addiction problems humanely. Yeah. What can we learn from Portugal elsewhere in the world about the fact that you've been doing that for so long? You know, uh, 
as you may guess, we have lots of visitors, delegations from all over the, the, the world coming to, to Lisbon. Uh, there's a lot of curiosity, mainly about the, the system of decriminalization. This is the hook. For, for, but in fact, when people leave Lisbon or Porto, when they visit our facilities, what they they, bear, they keep in mind is the the special way that our professionals, our personnel that address this, the way that drug users are treated. Uh, are, with compassion, they come for a facility, everybody knows their name, their, their, uh, how are you since uh, last week, how is your child or how is your father? Uh, people care, people are really interested and in this is what we call the humane approach and people tend to uh, try to address the real needs of those people, not uh, uh, not to, to adapt them to our models, but to fulfill the real needs that real people have in, in practice. How do you manage that? Because the workforce... So I, 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 I read some research last year about the, the groups that are most stigmatised, uh, most stigmatising towards mental health patients. Yeah. And the group that stigmatise mental health patients most are health professionals. Mm-hmm. Now that was... A surprising finding yeah. to me, but actually, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense. And you know, then them and us to kind of protect your own, yeah. I don't know, sanity. How do you manage to to have a workforce here that do that, yeah. that that treat people humanely? Yeah. Yes, you know, we developed our our responses exactly during the peak of the of the of the epidemic of heroin. Uh, what we have now is is is, is the remaining of the, the that uh, that system that was created at that time. We have we are having some difficulties in adapting to new realities. Uh, a couple of minutes I was talking with a journalist, and uh, in fact we had a very binding relation with uh, our ancient heroin users of 20 years ago. They. If our our clients, let let me call them, were very protective, uh, they were very friendly. We, I can't remember significant episodes of violence between. Uh, we did not need a security guard on our facilities. Uh, uh, we were protected by them. Nowadays things are changing because we have much more problems of mental health and much more uh, stimulant use, cocaine, crack cocaine, uh, and people have another attitude towards professionals, much more aggressivity, and sometimes, uh, a couple of weeks ago, ago we had a, an episode with a, a patient uh, taking out a, a firearm, a fire gun to... to to the professional that was dealing with him. So things are changing. So And this poses new challenges, uh, but probably uh, may cause a kind of a reaction from professionals that is not so empathic, so easily empathic. So uh, we need also to, to reflect and to, to discuss in moments come. As these conferences are important also to... to have new ways to deal with uh, this uh, the, this kind of problems. And 
what are you learning here in Portugal from the reforms that are happening elsewhere, having listened to lots of presentations yeah, yeah, today? Yeah. No, it's important. We are about, we will have a new government that will sit tomorrow. Uh, so, uh, and uh, we had elections re recently. Some parties, uh, probably most of the parties, included in their programs the work on legalization of cannabis, for instance. Uh, and this is a debate that is going to, to, to come into, into our society. I'm not sure on what will be the result, but uh, it will come. And it's very important to have uh, some of the statements that we have heard in the last uh, three days pro and cons and uh, what what really what does science uh, have to, to to say and what do real experiences that are taking place about the uh, about this uh, decision such as Canada Uruguay etc uh, of course we can find uh, all kind of reports that we, as we search for them with uh, uh, all kind of bias uh, it depends from the starting point of uh, the, when you produce those reports so objective data are still quite scarce but uh, anyway uh, I also assume that uh, we are uh, defending we are struggling for a more uh, science oriented uh, uh, political decision uh, but in my view science is a fundamental source of information uh, towards uh, political decision but it does not exempt political uh, politicians from their responsibility in taking their options okay otherwise it would be directly uh, driven Okay, evidence says so, we take this decision. But there are politicians, that's why we elect them, and that's why they uh, discuss among them and they pose their questions to the. They send back uh, their doubts to society, and uh, so. Uh, so, so, in my experience, <laughs> politicians look for evidence to support the decision that they've already made. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah, how, that's how, can we, how can we take the evidence that we have and try and influence? Have you got any advice about how countries can... No, it's... it's uh, as, as what regards this discussion, specific discussion on uh, uh, market regulation for, uh, for recreational use of cannabis, I think we need a, a little more... Uh, time of the development of the, those experiences to better understand what happens in terms of mental health. Okay, what happens? More psychosis, uh, more early use of uh, of cannabis, more problems, more violence, more more car crashes related to or not. Okay, we need a series because we have some anecdotal data, but a very short series of years. Okay, so any slight evolution of, of the numbers uh, lead us to, oh yes, it's dropping, the violence is dropping but the next year probably it will uh, raise again so we need some distance to understand what is the trend okay, and from then we have we get some evidence evidence uh, 
uh, and we must be aware in taking these decisions what kind of interests are for us, for me specifically, the, the supreme value is health. But we need to understand that there are other values in conflict, namely economic uh, values. And what prevails? That is a political option also. Yes? Uh, so we need to be aware that this is not only science or this evidence that leads to the options, but uh, a lot of other factors. Thank you very much for sharing with me your perspective on this. It's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you.